My name's Tim, as you may have gotten. Uh, the, regular, the regular preacher, Ed, as you saw, is indeed here, but he needs to cut out a little early today. He's going to a Magnum P.I.-themed costume party after church. He's got, the, he's got the Detroit Tigers hat and the fake mustache in the car. Seriously, no, Ed, Ed's, Ed's got a busy day, and he's, he's gracious enough to allow for amateur hour here uh, today at, at church, but we're going to, we're going to be in, uh, we're going to, we're going to resume our study of the book of John. Um, and if you recall a couple of weeks ago, uh, Ed took us through John chapter seven, um, which, which, which had Jesus at the, at the festival of tabernacles. And before we get started in today's lesson, I, I would like to just backtrack a little and just, just read part of chapter seven to, to kind of Give us a little context context of where we're going today. And so particularly in verse 37 of John chapter 7, it reads, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And, And if you recall... Uh, Ed mentioned that um, on this last and most important day of the Feast of Tabernacles, there was there would have been some things happening with water as part of the ceremony. The priests would have had these pitchers from the Pool of Siloam, and they would have poured them out at the altar. Uh, and, and and here Jesus is at this festival, making these claims that kind of tie him to the living waters. And of course, as the chapter went on, and Ed, Ed took us through this, the the, the, the people. We're, we're wondering, who is this guy? Is this the prophet? Is, could this be the Messiah? But, but the Pharisees and the chief priests and the leaders were having nothing to do with that. As we closed out chapter 7, they, they, they rejected the idea that he could be the Messiah. They turned away from the idea that he could be anything other than a, than a hillbilly from Galilee, essentially, uh, that needed to be dealt with and snuffed out. Uh, and that brings us to our lesson today. Um, and, and we're going to start in, in, in John uh, 7.53. We'll go through uh, uh, 8.11. This, this is the familiar story of the woman caught in adultery. Um, it, it's a very familiar story culturally. Even people that don't know the story know the phrase, he who is without sin cast the first stone. They, people use that a lot to keep you from challenging them on their sin. Um, it's a good way to <laughs> push people back. Um, but, but it's also a bit of a controversial study because if you are a Bible reader, you know that when you come to it, you start seeing all these flashing lights around it. In, in, my, in my version of the Bible, the words are all italicized and they're bracketed and there's these footnotes around them that say things like the original manuscripts didn't have this story or, or some manuscripts put it elsewhere. Some manuscripts put it in the book of Luke, um, which I find very encouraging, by the way. Um, you know, if, if, if the Bible were this contrived, agenda-driven book put together by evil men, like a lot of folks try to say that it is, you wouldn't be so open about the fact that, yeah, we're not sure where this one belongs. Right? I mean, yeah, that, that, there's some brutal honesty there that just really endears me all the more to the Bible. And, and, and for, the, for that matter, you, you'd be hard-pressed to find a, a scholar, a reputable scholar, of, of any time in Christian history that would stand up and say this story does not belong 
most, most seem to be in agreement that this is a story about Jesus that, that needs to be uh, considered in our study of his life. Yep. <clears throat> so let's go ahead and read, shall we? Um, we'll, be in, uh, we'll start in John 7, 53. It says, then all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So again, contextually, the last day of the feast has just happened, and people have gone home. And and, and, uh, uh, H, verse 2, continues, at dawn he, being Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him and sat down, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the oldest ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. <clears throat> Amen. So maybe unpack this a little bit before we get into, into the lesson itself. You know, we, we, it, it's dawn. It's the day after the festival. Jesus is back at the temple. And uh, it says that he sits down. There's a, there's a group of people that, that he's going to teach. And he sits down, which is very rabbinical, right? Uh, sitting was, a, was an idea of authority. You know, Jesus said that the Pharisees sat in the seat of Moses in, in Matthew 23 and in Luke uh, 22, he would say that he himself would sit down at the right hand of God as the Son of Man. Uh, James and John's mother wanted them to sit at the right and left hand of his throne. Sitting was a sign of authority, and rabbis would sit and and they would teach. So here he is teaching this group, and these Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the NIV says, maybe other versions say scribes. And that's the only place in John where that is mentioned, the teachers of the law and the scribes. And, and I think it's important, you know, the Pharisees who've been kind of hounding Jesus for some time, they, they've, brought some, they've brought some firepower with them. We, we, experts in the law are here now to talk about this. And they drag along with them this woman that they say they caught in the act of adultery. And when I, when I watched, when, when, you, when you watch the movies about the life of Jesus, they, they always seem to depict just Jesus, the woman, and the accusers. But it, but it was bigger than that. There, there was a crowd there. They were in the temple courts. They were, people were being taught. and So we've got a full-on spectacle going on wow. here, right? Uh, uh, disruptive. The, they, they say they caught the woman in the act of adultery. You know, do, you, do, you, do you think they, they said, okay, um, we're going to go see Jesus in the temple. Why don't you clean yourself up a little bit, put your clothes back on, fix your hair? I don't know. Maybe. But maybe they just dragged her in as is. Right? Maybe she wasn't even clothed, standing there in the temple courts of all of these people looking at her, humiliated and shamed. And the Pharisees say, we caught her in the act. And that should cause you to say, what? You mean you caught her in the act? How, how did that come about? How, 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 did, that, how did that surface? Right? And, and, and the question that probably all of you have asked at one time or another is, where's the man? 
Yeah. I guess the sisters have been asking that a lot longer than I have. <laughs> Where's the man? The law of Moses does indeed say that adulteresses should be stoned. You can find it in Leviticus 20 and you can find it in Deuteronomy 22, perhaps some other places. Um, but in every instance where you read it, and, and adultery takes on various forms. You know, there's, there's various situations that the Old Testament describes as, as adultery. But all of them call for the man and the woman to be killed. There is no instance where only the woman is to be brought in and stoned. But here they are. If, you know, my mom used to say it takes two to tango. So, so if they caught her, they caught him. It's impossible that it wouldn't be that way. But, but mysteriously... He's not here, you know, and it's fun to wonder, was he in the crowd? Was he was he one of the accusers? What, what, just how much was going on here? How weird was this? Right. Right. But they asked Jesus that, you know, they, they they tell him that she should be stoned. And they say to Jesus, what what do you say? And this is odd. This would have even been odd at the time, because the, the, the fact of the matter is. Stoning adulteresses. And adulterers, or really anyone for that matter, was, was, was not really the thing at this particular time in Israel. Okay, um, th Think about when you learn the gospel, when you read Matthew, Joseph finds out that his betrothed Mary is pregnant. And he knows that he didn't get her pregnant. Right? That would have been a definition of adultery according to uh, Deuteronomy. But it, the Bible says he considered divorcing her. But it never crossed his mind to stone her, right? According, we don't, we don't get that from the Bible. And when Jesus goes on to teach about uh, divorce, for instance, and he says, I don't want you divorcing, the one, the one sort of excuse or the one sort of out that he gives is sexual immorality, which would have included adultery. No talk of stoning, right? And, and a lot of this comes from the fact that the Romans who were in charge of the whole thing, they, the, the Romans were all about order and peace, Right? And they'll kill as many people as they need to, <laughs> to have order and peace. But, but they weren't really keen on their subjects doing it on their own, right? They didn't want vigilantism. When, when, the, when the Jewish leaders are, are trying to get Pilate to condemn Jesus in, in, later in John in, in chapter 18, and, and, and Pilate says to him, you've got your own law. You, you do your own thing with this guy. In verse 31, they, they, re, they go back to him and say, we don't have the right to execute anyone. So they're really putting Jesus up against it here, right? They're saying either you have to deny the law of Moses, which which means you're 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 a blasphemer, you, let alone you can't be the Messiah. You don't you're not even a good Jew, or you're going to go run afoul of Roman law, which could get you in some big trouble. So it was a really dirty, awful trick <laughs> that that they're trying to play on Jesus. And Jesus bends down and starts writing in the dirt or on the ground, right? I was pondering, were the temple courts, uh, did they have a stone floor? Did they have a dirt floor? But even if it was a stone floor, it was a, it was a day after a festival. There was dirt and dust, and he's writing. You, you could see what he was writing, right? Right, good point. And I've always wondered, and I think a lot of us wonder, what, what was he writing? Why is he doing this? Right? I, I've often thought that uh, he was trying to buy time. <laughs> like, I don't know what to do here. Let me scribble, act like I'm thinking, and someone will come to me. Right? Or I've often thought maybe he was trying to be very dismissive of them. Like, you know, you're so insignificant. I'm just going to doodle. You know, I'm not even, like, like you do to your teachers in school, right? So I'm not going to pay attention. I'm going to draw pictures. Of... Um, but, but, you know, let, let's, let's give the Bible credit and let's give Jesus credit. The Bible 
doesn't put useless things uh, out there for us to read, to just gloss over. And, and Jesus being a rabbi, a rabbi was, a, was teaching 24-7. Everything they did had a purpose. Everything they said was meant to teach, and everything they did was meant to illustrate and teach. And what they taught was the Hebrew Bible. That was their subject matter. That, that was their life. Now, if you're a Pharisee like, like these guys here, or you, you probably had much, if not all, of your Old Testament memorized. If you were an uh, expert in the law, a teacher of the law, you most certainly had it memorized. So they would, have, they would have known what Jesus was trying to illustrate here. Now, if you're a first century Christian and have no hope of ever having your Old Testament memorized, um, you can use Google and you'll eventually find your way to Jeremiah 17. So let's, let's go over there, if you, if you don't mind. I'd like to just pop over there. And again, why is Jesus writing on the ground? And what is Jesus writing on the ground? <clears throat> I think we're going to get a hint of it here. Jeremiah, of course, was a prophet uh, uh, in, in, in the time of when Judah was about to be carried away in, into exile by Babylon. And he, he's kind of waxing poetic in, in chapter 17. And in verse 13 of Jeremiah 17... He says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. And if you remember what we read in the previous chapter, Jesus says, I'm, I've got the living water. And, the, fair, and, and the, the chapter 7 very explicitly said that the leaders weren't buying this. They, they, they didn't want anything to do with this. So now here's Jesus. They're trying to talk about this adultery thing. And, and, the, and the crazy idea that they might actually stone somebody today in the temple. And he bends down to the ground and gets down to business. And you imagine these Pharisees and teachers of the law standing there looking at him. And remember, this is a tense situation. You've got a crowd of people that came to be taught thinking, what in the world's going on here? You've got these angry church leaders with an agenda trying to get, get evil done. And then you've got this poor woman who had no idea her day was going to turn out like this, right? Saying, am I going to die? I mean, what's going on? Can we get down to this? And Jesus bends down and he... I just imagine him looking up at these Pharisees, and he probably knew some, if not all, their names. Tim, Reese, Dave, Cable. And he's got, anybody who knows their Bible would have been like, oh my goodness, what in the world is this? Does this guy want to get killed today? I mean, I mean, this is intense, right? This is so intense, this teaching moment right here. But they press on him, right? And they, they demand an answer. So he gets up and says, um, I won't quote the, I, I have it memorized in the King James Version from my youth. But NIV says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And says that they all went away. First, the oldest, who would have had the most credibility to, 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 to get this mob going in the first place. And then the youngest, um, when they lose their muscle, they split too. <clears throat> now, now, this is where I think we usually get this wrong. Um, you know, Jesus came to fulfill the law. He said that himself, not abolish it. So for Jesus to say what we think he says... Which is, well, you, if you're perfect, if you're completely righteous, 
then you can carry out the law of Moses. That's not something Jesus would say, right? Because that's not how it was written in Deuteronomy or Leviticus. It doesn't say if you catch someone in adultery, if you find the one perfect guy, and he can, he can do it. No. What, 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 what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 17, verse 7, when it talks about how to exact this condemnation on people, it says that the hands of the witnesses will be the first to put them to death. And then the rest of the whoever, the congregation, don't, I don't know how that works, but the first stone comes from the witness, right? The, the Old Testament also says that there must be at least two witnesses. So what Jesus is essentially saying here is, I need two witnesses to step forth, at least, and testify. I need a testimony. I need you to tell me what you saw. And you know how these testimony things work. You've watched TV. If you've ever been a witness, Rodolfo sees this play out all the time. If you've ever been deposed, you don't just get to give your testimony and they go, okay, thanks. There's questioning. Yeah. Well, how did, how did that happen? Well, was it nighttime? Did you have your glasses? Had you been drinking? You know how that all goes, right? They try to discredit, you know, but these two witnesses would have had to have stepped forward and under questioning, maybe get asked the question, what did you do with the man? Where's that man that we were talking about earlier? And, you know, even in our culture, if somebody knocks on your door and says, hey, I just uh, killed my wife. Uh, the cops are on to me. Can you hide me in your attic until this all blows over? And you go, yeah, come on. Yeah. You're now guilty of the same crime, right? That's how the law works. You're, you're, you're an accomplice after the fact. You're, you're, you're complicit, right? And these, it's not that these men were less than perfect. We're all less than perfect. Anybody who ever exacted the law of Moses was less than perfect. These men were guilty of the exact same crime. Jesus is saying... You, you, you want to throw rocks at the, adult, at the people guilty of adultery? Let's, let's get everybody involved. Who's first? And they all walk away. Right? They all walk away. Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses. He, he asked the woman, is there no one here to condemn you? And she says, no. And he says, well, I don't condemn you either. He can't condemn her. There's, the witnesses are gone. Right? According to the law. According to the law, he can't condemn her. The witnesses are gone. <clears throat> you know, this is an amazing story. It's, it's so familiar. It's so well-liked. And I think part of the reason is because it's really easy to draw good and useful conclusions from it. Yeah. All right? Yeah. We, get, we, we, we get, you know, don't be a hypocritical, hypocritical self-righteous, legalist Pharisee. Right? Don't do that. Yes. Everybody gets that, right? Um, uh, be contrite and humble. In your sin, like, like, like we assume the adulterous woman was. The Bible doesn't really say, for all we know, she was defiant and brazen. But, but I doubt it. She was probably humble, broken, humiliated. Be like that. Be like, the, be like the publican that beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a good lesson. We need to take that. And even more so, be like Jesus. Amen. Be merciful. Yep. Right? Uh, blessed are the merciful, Jesus says. And he acts it out. Here. But, you know, this morning, given the fact that it's, I'm only 20 minutes in and we got some time, um, <clears throat> let's, 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 let's honor the fact that some brave people 
many centuries ago said, you know what, I'm going to put this story in the Bible even though it's going to be controversial. They could have easily just left it out. You know, I don't want to make waves. There's a lot of good stories in the Bible. But for some reason they put this in here. And surely it was for more than just to take easy answers from. Let's dig a little bit into this. My, my, my title today uh, is Justice for All. Justice for All. Let's consider Jesus. Let's, let's forget about the Pharisees for now. Let's focus on Jesus as he stands there with this adulterous woman. Nothing in our scripture today gives us any hint that she was innocent. There's nothing in there that says she was set up, framed. She was guilty. And Jesus stands there with her. What is adultery? What does adultery do? You know, if she was an adulteress, one of three things was going on. Either she was married and she was cheating on her husband, or she was single but she was with a married man, or maybe they were both married. But one, if not two, families are now devastated. All right? The, the Pharisees can kill this woman and snuff her out and try to forget about her, but the effects of what she did remain. Jesus can forgive her, which we presume he did, not condemn her. Happily ever after? No, not really. The effects of her sin remain. This is awful. Adultery, you know, what, are there children involved? You know, what kind of therapy are they going to need now, right? And in this culture, they're going to always be remembered as, oh, you're the son of that woman. And that's going gonna, gonna to hang on them. That's, not no, that's no small matter. When God wants to illustrate to us how much he hates idolatry, the closest illustration he can get is adultery. Think Hosea, think many other prophets. Adultery is not okay. It's not okay. And and the reason I bring this up is because when, when, when we get presented, or when I get presented with these really awful things that are life, there are some awful things in this world that we bump up against. <clears throat> I, I would have been a great Pharisee. <laughs> just, just, that's wrong. You need to be punished. And just, I want to forget about it. I want to go on and pretend like it never happened. You know, I want to purge the evil from the camp, right, as the Old Testament said. But of course, I call myself a Christian. I can't do that. Illustrated right here. So where I tend to go from there is is to having these conversations in my head of well, well maybe it's not that bad what she did. Maybe 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 we maybe I need to change my attitude towards adultery. Maybe she was you know maybe she had a horrible upbringing and, and that explains why she did what she did or maybe maybe she was in a really bad marriage and she was you know just naturally like anyone would do run to the arms of a mother. I, I try to excuse it right right I, I tell myself i have to condemn or condone i have to condemn or i have to condone because both of those are easy and i love easy but that's not what jesus does jesus Stands there beside this adulterous woman in all of her sin. And he does not condemn her. But under no circumstance does he give any hint that what she did was okay. He tells her, 
go and leave your life of sin. You know, it's even more intense than what he told the paralytic in, in, in chapter 5 when he said stop sinning before something else bad or something worse happens to you. He yeah. tells you, your life is a life of sin. Leave your life of sin. But, but he does this. He loves her. He protects her. He saves her life without giving any excuses for what she has done. That's, that's mind-blowing to me. How do you do that? That doesn't close the loop in my mind, right? Where is the fix, right? Where's the, where's the justice, right? You know, Jesus came to save the world, not to condemn it. And, and Jesus is uniquely both qualified and, and, and carrying the authority necessary to do this kind of thing, right? I mean, we know the story of Jesus. He's going, this woman is standing there humiliated and, and covered in sin and, 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 and ashamed. And Jesus himself will take on the sin of the world and, and go and, and, and be beaten, uh, accused. The woman was rightly accused. He'll be falsely accused. He'll be spat upon and mocked, and he'll be crucified, probably naked. Talk about him. Jesus knows humiliation, right? But I, I, would, I would encourage us to maybe take it just a level deeper here and not over-spiritualize it. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. He hasn't experienced that shame yet. Perhaps he knew what was coming exactly. I don't know. But I would submit that, that, that God made it a point... To send Jesus into the world under the earthly circumstances necessary to make him a compassionate friend of sinners. If you think about what you know of Jesus, if you were to go to a Jew in the first century and hand him the book of Matthew and say, listen, man, you've got to learn about this Jesus. He is it. Right. And this book will tell you everything you need to know about him. The Jew sits down. He starts flipping page one. He gets to a genealogy of Jesus. And he says, awesome, because Jews love genealogies. We hate genealogies. When we want to get to know people, we stalk them on social media. Find, we want to know where they work, where they live, where their kids go to school, where they went to school, what kind of car they drive, what kind of sports they're into, whatever, right? That's what we, Jews didn't care about that stuff. Jews, all, the, 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 the big question among the Jews was, who's your daddy? They want to know where you came from. That's who you were. So you start reading Matthew, and you get to, you go to verse 1, okay, Abraham, okay, we're starting off good, we like Abraham, you get down to uh, uh, Jacob, oh, he's, he's a relative, he's, he's one of the 12 tribes, Judah, and then you get to verse 3, and you see Tamar, and you're like, what's this all about? Because first of all, Jews didn't put women in genealogies, right? Wasn't my idea, all right? <laughs> but I mean, that's just the way it was, right? That that's, it was a patriarchal society. You tracked fathers, right? But Tamar, not only is she a, a woman that we can't figure out, she wasn't particularly a reputable woman. I mean, this, this is the Genesis 38. She poses as a prostitute, you know, covers her face, sleeps with her father-in-law. I mean, it's just talk about. I mean, how do you ah? Right? This. How do I resolve this? Right? This is really. Is ugly. You go down, you, you meet Rahab in verse 5, the, the prostitute from Jericho. You meet in verse 6, Uriah's wife, a.k.a. Bathsheba. Adultery. This is your, this is your, your Jews like, this is the Messiah? This is, this is, you know. And you get down to his mother Mary, 
who we look at as, oh, the perfect Virgin Mary, the, the lovely vessel of the Holy Spirit. And, and she is all those things. I'm not trying to, but we only see that in hindsight. If you would have been here, all you would have known her of as, you would have known her at, as only some young girl that got pregnant before she was married. You could, they weren't buying that Holy Spirit stuff, right? Jesus would have grown up under that. I don't think we think about that enough. Jesus grew up a man of questionable descent. Okay, I won't use the language that they would have used, right? But it's, it's not good. And when we get later on in John chapter 8, we'll see him sparring with the, with the Jewish leaders. And they'll say things to him like, well, we're not illegitimate children. And it, it's not exactly the same context, but I tend to believe that it's a little bit of a little rabbit punch to Jesus. We're not illegitimate children. Who, you, who do you think you're talking to? But this is Jesus, right? Came here, a, a, a man of questionable descent, to be friends of sinners. Let's, let's just humor me if we look at one other passage uh, in the book of Isaiah and then we'll close out. In Isaiah 42, we, we get a, a very familiar prophecy about Jesus <clears throat> and, and very apropos to what we're talking about here today. And in, in verse 1 of Isaiah 42, it reads, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring justice. He will bring forth justice, excuse me. This idea of a, a smoldering wick or a bruised reed, you know, if you, if you walk, if you, reeds, reeds stand nice and tall and they're useful for, for various different things, but they're very fragile. If you bump one of them the wrong way, they'll, you've seen them, they kind of bend, right? If you're a duck hunter, you know what I'm talking about. Um, you can't fix that reed. You can't straighten it back up. You can't put a splint on it. The best thing to do is just break it off, right? Be done with it. A smoldering wick. You're not going to fan that wick back into flame. It's, not gonna, it's just going to smolder. It's not going to give much light. It's not going to give off any heat. You'd be better off just uh, snuffing it out, maybe try to relight it or replace it. These things, a smoldering wick, if anything, is just a fire hazard. It's just going to catch something on fire that you don't want to burn. You know, these, are, these things are worthless, useless, spent, maybe even a little dangerous. Like adulteresses and thieves and illegitimate children and murderers and drug addicts and pick your poison. These are the people that Jesus came to save. This is who he came for. That's not New Testament. That's Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. And Jesus can do this so very well because he comes from a line of bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. And it's said in, 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 in Isaiah 42 that he came to bring justice. Right? And, and, and we love justice in America. Right? We talk about it all the time. But you know, for us, it's always about the right punishment. Right. If someone does wrong and they don't get punished appropriately, justice has not been done. Right? We got this going on this week. If you've been 
well, there's some really awful stuff going on, right? And, uh, but, but in the Bible, the, the Hebrew word is mishpat for, for justice. And, and it does involve recompense. It does involve punishment. It, it involves the payback, as James Brown would say, if you're old enough to remember him. But, it, but it's a little bigger than that. It, it involves restoring things to the way they should be. Right? True justice restores. Right? You know, God created the world out of chaos. And he set it right. And sin knocks it off. Right? True justice restores us to the way God always intended us to be. That's the justice that Jesus has come to deliver. He came to call the world out of its sin rather than to destroy the world and the adulteresses in their sin. Right? Throughout the Bible, God has been doing the punishment thing. You can't miss it. Starts in Genesis. You know, uh, Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. Cain kicked further out of the garden. Whatever you know, wherever he was trying to be. Um, you, you've got the flood. You've got the scattering of the people at the Tower of Babel. You've got fire raining down on Sodom. You've got exile of the people of Israel, Egypt, uh, Babylon. But in these last days, God sent Jesus, the Son of Man, born on this earth into weakness. And disgrace to be a friend of sinners like you and me. And through his death and resurrection, he ushered in a kingdom like the world still can't quite figure out. You know, it's a kingdom where adulteresses and illegitimate children and murderers and thieves and drug addicts can not only be entered into the kingdom, but they can reign with him. If only they will leave their life of sin and follow him. This is our king. This is our rabbi. And we love this because we all know that we too are complicit in the sin of the adulteress. We know that we need the the gentle hand uh, when our own bruised reeds and and, and smoldering wicks get dealt with. But but the question that I want to leave you with today is, do you want to be a disciple of that? And I'll leave you with questions and no answers. Maybe, maybe a better man can preach on that. But, you know, when I look, you know, how are we going to treat the smoldering wicks and the, and the bent reeds in our life, in our society? You know, when I, I don't, you know, old people like me don't keep up with modern times because it just takes too much energy. Things are just moving too fast, right? So I don't, I don't watch a lot of TV. You know, but, but if I'm like at the gym or I'm walking through the, the break room at work and I'll see CNN or whatever, and I just see whatever the news of the day is. It's so amazing to me that the, that the depravity in our world that, that, that just 10 short years ago, even our sick society would have been like, no, you can't do that. We now not only condone it, but we celebrate it. We celebrate it. You know, who is the Hampton Roads Church in all of this? What are we to the world? You know, are we going to be like the Pharisees? Are we just going to condemn it? Pray that it gets squashed out. Yeah, that's what wells up in me. I'll just confess. I see these things. I hear these things. When? When, like the psalmist, God, when will you bring justice? 
When will you bring the pain? <laughs> but, but I'm a disciple of Jesus, so I can't do that. So what will I do? What will we do? Will we, will we follow the American church at large and just start condoning it? Are we going to just start saying things like, well, maybe we shouldn't put so much value on some of those Old Testament scriptures that talk about immorality or, and other forms of sin. Maybe we need to get with the times. Maybe we need to, you know, we're, we're here to save the world. Maybe we should start trying to be more friendly towards it. Oh, wait a minute. James 4 talks about being friends with the world. Well, no matter, we can stop reading that too. You know, we can't do either of those, condemn or condone, if we're going to call ourselves disciples of Jesus. You know, Jesus asks us to walk the narrow road, right? the road that goes between condemnation and, and, and condoning. <clears throat> We have to somehow figure out a way in in the days ahead to love without compromising. And we have to figure out a way to invite the outcast. Those that are lost in depravity, we have to invite them somehow in a compelling way, in a loving way, and in an uncompromising way to leave their life of sin. So that they can follow our disgraced Lord into his amazing kingdom of justice and restoration. To God be the glory. Thank you. We're dismissed.